0: One of the most perplexing books in scripture for many commentators is the Song of Solomon. They really don't know what to do with it. It's actually a pretty sensual bit of Hebrew poetry. And if you know it, or it's been a while, it's essentially a dialogue for the most part between apparently King Solomon and the Shulamite woman. One is the lover, the other is the beloved. And the language is quite sensual, it's even erotic. Just to give you a little PG taste of it, here's here's what it says in the second chapter. He begins, like a lily among thorns, is my darling among the young women. She replies, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Regardless of what scholars make of it, at a minimum, it really is a a poetic book around what we would call romantic love. And you know what romantic love feels like whether it feels all encompassing, it feels quite inspiring, it feels like it just consumes every aspect of my mind and my body and my senses. I wonder if what they're doing right now. I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder if they're okay. I wonder if they're thinking about me. Oh, I haven't had a text in a while. Maybe they're not thinking about me. Um, you know, they, These can just be the, the ways that we express those initial aspects of being romantically connected with someone. And that's what's going, again, that's sort of what's starting here. But as I said, it goes on to PG-13 and then some because it really is an expression of physical love. It's an expression of that joy, of that, that sense of body, soul, and spirit being connected to another person. And so as I said, scholars haven't quite known what to do with this. When when, uh, the Jewish scholars that looked at it said, oh, we know what this is. This is really an allegory of how God loves Israel. And later on, some of the early church fathers said, well, no, because Christ has come. It's still an allegory, but it's an allegory of how Christ loves the church. But I think there's something that really is in those formulations. Later on, uh, it came down to, uh, if you go to a marriage conference, you'll see this quoted fairly often. Sometimes people just sort of see it as, as essentially an ideal or poetic way to express God's plan for a man and a woman to be married. Uh, I think that's part of it. I don't think that's the whole piece. I think it very much does express how God loves his people, how he loves us, fully engaged, engaged with all his senses, with all his sense of being. And we, in response, because romantic love at its best is mutual, we respond in like way and I, I start with that, and you're kind of wondering at this point, well, hmm, what's that got to do with any of the scriptures we've read? That'd be a good question. Because we're looking at the gospel reading that Cindy read. We're looking at the parable that Jesus tells about the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go look for the one, or the woman who loses a coin, and now she only has nine instead of the ten she started with, and she is diligently sweeping her house to find it. Both these are saying essentially the same thing. And they're saying that what they are basically doing at their at their most fundamental is expressing to us the love of God that is relentless in his pursuit of us. Too often, I don't know if this is your experience, certainly mine, too often, when we hear about repent. And and we're encouraged to repent. It's almost this. It, it, it's almost framed as a transaction. It's not really a tra- it, at some level. Yes, I have to repent and give my life to Christ, and and in order to experience all the blessings that Scripture speaks of and the eternal life that is promised. But there's something that's almost uh, antiseptic about that. It, it's almost just in this legal context. And I think if we it, it, if anybody's tempted to leave it there, is missing out what, what's really going on behind the scenes. What's going on behind the scenes is the relentless love of God is pursuing us. And that is what's fueling the, the actions that are taken in this parable. So just to unpack the parable, because if we, un, if we start to understand just how much it's motiv- God's actions are motivated by his love, I think that not only encourages us, but it instructs us and it allows us to look at ways that we are meeting those around us with the love of Christ. So let's look at that. In the text, of course, it just starts with the setting. Tax collectors and sinners were meeting with Jesus. Specifically, Jesus told them, uh, sorry, it says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Who are the, when tax collectors and sinners, who are those guys? In a, in a word, they are the outcasts. They are the outsiders. They're the ones not included. They're the ones that are on the fringes or on the margins. Tax collectors, we would call them collaborators today or traitors. They were oftentimes Jews who were in the position of doing the Romans will of gouging the, their fellow Israelites for tax money, and they were on commission, so they could keep it themselves. And they had the enforcement power of the Roman army with them, so they had a fair amount of leverage over their fellow Jews. They were so they were collaborating with the occupiers, with that were in Promised Land, and so they were on the outside. Sinners were, as a catch-all term, for anybody that lived a life essentially outside of Torah or actually all the other intricate rules that followed from that, that the uh, Pharisees and the teachers of the law created over centuries about what it really meant to keep these laws. And so they would be considered those that were not moral in some way, shape, or form. But look at how Luke opens this up. It is these outsiders, the tax collectors, the sinners, who are all gathering to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the so-called spiritual elite, were not listening. Instead, they were muttering. And they were saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Personally, I'd rather be listening to Jesus than grumbling or complaining against him. And so that's the setup. And so Jesus tells them the parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And then with the woman and the coin, it's the same, similar kind of deal. She loses one, but, and then she lights a lamp, sweeps the house, search, carefully searches for it, and when she finds it, she, like the shepherd, calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin." And then Jesus gives us a glimpse into what's going on in the heavenlies when this happens. He says, I tell you in the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people that don't need to repent. Or with the woman with the coin, I tell you there's one rejoicing. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why is there such rejoicing? It is because of the love of God that's in action as he seeks each person, as he sought each of us, he's compelled by his love. We don't rejoice over some achievement or some uh, turn of circumstances unless we're really invested in them, unless we really wanted to see that outcome. And then that sense of investment comes out of that place of love. So the first If you're taking notes, the first point might be God loves tax collectors and sinners, those that are considered outside. How does He manifest that love in the text that we're seeing? Well, various things stand out. It says He searches diligently, He searches until He finds. He doesn't give up. This is why we can say His love is relentless. It doesn't cool off, it doesn't stop, it doesn't grow weary. He diligently pursues us until he finds us. Our love gets a little, you know, iffy at times for other people. Just ask people that we're married to or people in our family or people that we're close to. Yeah, they, we could, they could probably point out times where our own love has been a little less relentless, a little less diligent, a little, becoming a little more me-focused than you focused. But that's not God's love. He searches until he finds. And notice that both both of these parables have the same kind of, we'll just call it a sense of inconvenience. When the shepherd loses a sheep, his plans have changed. He was just going to go take the whole herd of a hundred, go home, put them into the pen, put his feet up, have supper, go to bed, repeat. But now he has to go and find this sheep the same sheep, we don't know if it's the same sheep. But sometimes we think of that. When we get inconvenienced, something happens and we have to go <laughs> look for, uh, we, God calls us to do something and our plan is this and yet something happens outside of the plan that we know is still what God wants. Here, to pursue the lost sheep is clearly what he wants. But at a minimum, it's inconvenient for the shepherd. At a minimum, it's inconvenient for the woman who has her own day scheduled, the the things that she wants to do. She wasn't counting on losing her lost coin. If you ever lost something, you'd lose a wallet, a purse, an iPhone. You're like, oh, stop everything. Everybody, if you've got people around you, you get them involved in the search. Plans have changed. At a minimum, it's inconvenient. But we're talking about you know, the context of, of loss, of, of being estranged a, a from God. And so the Lord, at, at personal cost, the Lord, at, at a sense of diligent, relentless love, pursues us. And it says that both the woman and the, and the shepherd find the coin and the sheep, respectively. But you know what's not in this either parable is any sense of condemnation. The shepherd isn't beating the sheep. The woman isn't like beating herself up for losing the coin. There's just a sense of, oh, I found what I've been looking for, what I love so much, what I need, what is precious to me. Now he's using, the Lord's using a coin and sheep. Uh, not to downplay how much he loves us, but to make it simple and straightforward for his audience so that they could understand things of basic value in that time and day. But but we get the opportunity to kind of look behind the scenes at what he's talking about, which is his love for people. And then again, both say so we're, we're being sought after diligently out of the Lord's relentless love there is a sense of personal cost to both people in terms of at, at a minimum schedule but of course we know what it cost Christ ultimately his life for us but that's why he came and when he finds us he doesn't condemn us because he knows already what is in us he doesn't have expectations for us that are somehow outside of him outside of our dependence on him. And when he finds us, which means when we repent and when we say, Lord, you have found me and I want you to put me around your neck and carry me through this thing called life that you gave me. He rejoices. And not only he rejoices, but heaven is rejoicing. Heaven's having a party. When I think of heaven, I don't think too much about actual rejoicing. I don't know why I do That's I do don't judge me. Um, I, I think part of it is like, I think of the singing that's going on and I think of the Lord's presence and I can only imagine that. But the rejoicing that goes on when a sinner is repenting, the rejoicing that goes on when you are sharing your faith with your colleague and you have the opportunity to see them make a commitment to the Lord, that you're happy but there's, you're, you're happy. Heaven is really happy. There is rejoicing going on. Again, as I said earlier, that rejoicing is coming out of that place of love. So God loves sinners and tax collectors. And those who come to know him, come to respond, come to repent. Repenting is turning away from this, this life that we think is the successful life. Anything that is de- defined, that life is defined as anything outside of God, any, anything outside of life in Christ. And we turn away from those things and we turn to him. It is a radical transformation. That's usually what scholars will tell you. It's not just a, hey, you know, we might want to adjust a few things here. No, it's turning around. It's on an absolutely different course correction. When we do that, we do that in response to God's love. Like that love is so relentless, but it's also so powerful. The, the other readings that were read... Megan's reading of Psalm fifty-one. This is Jesus, uh, this is David's repentant psalm. This is what he's saying. I, I'm going to grab a few verses here. He starts out, "Have mercy on me, God." According to what? According to your unfailing love. And he says, "Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." So you are right in your verdict and judge and, and justified when you judge. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy, rejoicing in heavy. Let me hear that joy and gladness, and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquity. Here is David responding to the love of God, known in the offer of forgiveness. This is the psalm of penitence that came after his sin with Bathsheba. This is the psalm of penitence that came after his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And if that doesn't demolish you, which it rightfully demolished David because he realized how far apart from his God he had grown over the months and, and because of the things he did, he is responding in that moment to the relentless love of God who is seeking after him, that he would repent and turn from this. As indeed he does. Or Paul, in his own testimony in the New Testament that was read, Paul says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, these are capital offenses in Jewish culture. To be a blasphemer of God was the death penalty. Uh, and Paul, is, he's got his hand and his arrest warrants for people that he know are going to be killed. He's a violent man, even though he actually doesn't get his own hands dirty. But he knows, he says, I was shown mercy because of ignorance and unbelief. Then he says, the grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And then Psalm 103, which we didn't read, but is so beautiful in the same vein. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as east is from west, so far has, has he removed our transgressions from us. The relentless love of Jesus does not stop just at our conversion it carries on to make sure that we continue in the calling that He's given us, in the grace that He's given us, in the things that continue to affect us and afflict us, in the temptations that seem to come up as if from out of nowhere. And even when we have fallen and found ourselves doing exactly what we didn't think we could ever do again because we came to the Lord, so He sends His messenger or this word and His scripture to us to say I love you relentlessly and I am always searching for you whenever you are lost. And so I, and I do that out of my love for you. His love is relentless. His love brings us back and brings us home. It calls to us and we respond to it. Jesus does that not only for our personal benefit But he does that, that we might extend that same thing to other people. See, we're called to love others as Jesus loved us. That means we're called to search diligently, to pray fervently for people. Um, This is not only true for us as individuals. It's true for, I think it's the call for all churches as well. What is it, you know, to search diligently for people, I think means to... um, just by way of practical application, Lord, who's, who's around me that you want to use me, my relationship, my connection, as your instrument of relentless love? And we can fully admit from the start, I cannot be relentless. I haven't been relentless, but by your help, I can take the next smart, wise step. Maybe it's somebody, I don't, more and more, I run into people who, whose faith has been hurt and burned by any number of things by abusive behaviors from clergy of of all manner of description, by uh, um, a corruption of the gospel that's turned it into a political manifesto of one description or, or another, by the old sins of greed and vice and pride and hypocrisy that have always been with us and still seem to have even more prominent manifestations than they did, by seeing people that claim to be our teachers and claim to be our leaders be anything but, when more data uh, is revealed. And so that has a cumulative effect on our faith. It can. And many people have just said, I'm, I'm walking away. That was fine for my parents, for my grandparents' generation, but that's not for me. Some of you know people like that. Some of you have come through or still processing even stuff in that category. Um, I pray that this is a word for us to equip us To be alongside of those who just can't reconcile the way Jesus has been modeled or the way church has been done with the gospel that they hear. And I think what breaks through is the relentless love of God for who they are and where they are. And I I pray that each of us embody that, that we can be God's instruments with people that we know in the places that they exist, uh, in the struggles that they have, It's not going to be cured overnight or done, but just to be alongside and just to ask how they're doing, to search, if you will, diligently, uh, like Jesus did, like the shepherd does, like the woman does, and then to be prepared. If you're up for that, then to be prepared, here's the full warning, full disclosure, be prepared to be at least inconvenienced. It's never convenient to lose something and have to mount a full-on search. It's never convenient to go when you're just about to put your feet up, just having to go outside and wander around finding somebody, finding something. It's never convenient when we get a call that says, hey, can you help me? Or when somebody comes alongside and says, you know, I don't really like your Jesus. There's a lot of things about being God's kingdom instrument, his vessel of relentless love that are inconvenient. And even the word just sounds like benign. But it's not benign. Remember, it has a seriousness to it. When Jesus, in another time where he's he's talking about another parable, he talks about the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is here. And it's like somebody said, the table is set, come on in. But they all alike began to make excuses. I have a new uh, pair of oxen that I got to try out. Oh, I've got a a business deal I got to go look at. Nothing None of those were illegal, wrong, or immoral, but they were inconvenient. I think the Lord puts things into our life that we would put in that inconvenient category that have huge eternal ramifications and implications. So may we be the people that pursue relentlessly. May we be the people that are willing to be inconvenienced. And may we be the people, and this is a little extra parable because it's not hugely in there, that pray fervently, Because prayer is so essential to seeing people respond to the relentless love of Jesus Christ. I'll close with this. Some of you guys know one of my heroes of the faith is George Mueller, a man in the 19th century who built a a growing orphanage uh, that was desperately needed and he did it all in faith. But that's cool and that's actually a different story for the purpose of today. He also did this at the age of 20, 22. He, kept, he actually kept a diary most of his life. And so at 22 he said, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day with a single inter, without a single intermission, whether sick or in health or, or on the land or at sea or wherever the pressure of my engagements might be, I still prayed. 18 months elapsed before the first of these five were converted. I thank God and prayed for the others. Five years elapsed and the second was converted. I thank God for the second and prayed on for the third. Day by day, I continued to pray for them and six years passed before the third one was converted. That means received the Lord, repented, turned to him. Wow, he's on a roll. Three guys, and, eh, it's still long. But then he writes, 36, then the narrator comes in, 36 years later, he wrote that the other two which were sons of friends of Mueller, were still not converted. But Mueller wrote this, but I hope in God, I pray on, and look for the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. 52 years later, after he began to pray daily without interruption for these two men, they were finally converted. But that was seven years after Mueller had died. The prayers of the righteous availeth much The call to be God's shepherd or the person who searches for the lost coin, to be a vessel of relentless love is such an amazing privilege. But it does require us to come before the Lord and say, Lord, who do you want me to pray for? It does require us to be inconvenienced. And it does require us to be on a search that we will never regret. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.